Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Rod Anderson. Well, thank you again. You'll remember that in our last session, we examined a number of prophecies uh, written 2,000 years ago from the Bible, which seem to be describing the very day in which we live today. Now, our presentation tonight is called Evidence Which Proves the Bible is True. So as I said last week, we looked at passages in the Bible which seem to identify the time and the near future in which we find ourselves. But a reasonable question that any thinking person will ask, well, how do we know that we can trust the Bible? How do we know that these passages that you shared with us uh, last week, they're actually going to be a reality? Why should you take any notice of the Bible? What makes the Bible any different to the newspaper or to the writings of Shakespeare or the writings of a, of a, a Milton? What makes the Bible different from a newspaper or a novel? How do you know that the Bible is not contrived by man? So these are the questions that I am going to answer for you this evening in our presentation. Now, I want to give you evidence real evidence that will satisfy even the most ardent skeptic because I want to share with you amazing prophecies which were which are simple to understand and simple to explain and we're going to be getting them all from the Bible and we're going to be allowing the Bible to explain itself and then we're going to see how it matches with history that we see recorded in the western world and elsewhere now we will see by the end of this presentation, that the Bible, God's Word, is inspired by Him, and it is of divine origin. Now, our first text that we're looking at tonight is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. And the Apostle Paul says, Do not despise, what? Prophecies. And prove all things, in other words, test all things, and hold fast to that which is good. So Paul says here, don't despise prophecies, but check them out, test them, prove them. And if they are what they are, if they are what they claim to be, then believe them. That's fair and reasonable. Wouldn't you agree? No person would disagree with those sort of sentiments at all. Even the most intransigent uh, skeptic would say, okay, I hear what it's saying and I can live with that. Let's, let's hear the evidence. And in fact, if we to go to Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 9 and 10, we read this verse, For I am God and there is no other. Now the book of Isaiah was written around 720 years prior to the time of Christ. So here, God speaking to the prophet Isaiah says, I am God and there is what does it say there? There is no one other. There is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient things, things that are not yet done. Here in the Bible, 
God says that he knows the end from the beginning. And the Bible stakes everything on its ability to be able to foretell the future. And if the Bible's claim is correct, that it can actually foretell the future, and it's true, then it's a miracle of foresight far beyond the ability in the ken of any man and woman who has ever lived. If a person could, if a person could truly look into the future, Look into the future. You know, you think about it, the greatest palace of the worlds would be there. They would be employed by the world's leaders. Everybody would be knocking at the door if people could truly look into the future. You know, if a person could look into the future even five minutes, they wouldn't be sitting on street corners wanting to read your palm or to gaze into crystal balls. They wouldn't be at festivals. They wouldn't be at carnivals. Do you know where they'd be? If a person could look into the future just five minutes, you know where they'd be? They'd be here at the racetrack or they'd be there at the casino, at the real roulette wheel. Because if they could look into the future in just five minutes, they would already know what the winning horse or what the winning number was. And there they could really make some money, not $20 here or $5 there. Think about this. The ability to foretell the future is God's avowed promise that he can and that he does and the bible in fact gives us evidence that it is inspired word from him and that the bible itself is not the mere inventions of human wisdom but rather it's the inspired word of god now what i want to do is i want to examine some prophecies So what we're going to do from this point on is we're going to identify some of the prophecies in the Old Testament. I'm going to explain what they mean to you. And then what we're going to do is we're going to see if they were actually fulfilled or not. Does that make sense? So to start our study on Bible prophecy now, we're going to be describing the capital of the Babylonian Empire, Babylon itself. Now, the ruins of ancient Babylon today are no more than 200 kilometers south of Baghdad in the country of Iraq. But I want to give you a little history now regarding Babylon. I want to place it in its historical setting so that you understand when we're referring to Babylon, we're not just talking about an insignificant little village. We are actually talking about a world power or a a power that dominated the then known world. You see, Babylon itself at the height of her glory was a city that seemed destined to rule forever. And that's the truth. It seemed as though it would never fall. The golden city had grown more powerful during the 8th and 7th centuries. And 700 years or 600 years prior to the time of Christ, it had reached its height under the command of a great king named King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the Babylonians, they invented an alphabet. They invented uh, mathematics or they used mathematics. They invented implements for measuring time. They discovered the arts of polishing, of boring, made fine advances in textile uh, fabrication. They also made huge advances in engineering, able to accurately track the heavenly bodies through their understanding of mathematics. The city of Babylon itself 
was laid out in a perfect square. The river Euphrates ran through the middle of the city. It watered its, in, its vineyards, its orchards, its vegetable patches, its grounds within it. And the river Euphrates passed through the two golden leaf gates at either end of the city. So the river passed right through the city of Babylon. Herodotus, the Greek historian, he said that there was enough food in Babylon to feed the people within that city city for 20 years so this is just a little information about the power and the grandeur and the might of of uh, of babylon but before babylon the proud ruler of the then known world had reached its height god's prophet isaiah made a remarkable prophecy inspired by god he says this and babylon the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. In this verse, Isaiah is told by God that he sees the greatness of Babylon, that most magnificent city, the ruler of the then known world, that mighty city completely destroyed as was Sodom and Gomorrah. Gomorrah. Now, looking back over history, there are probably no more words more accurate that actually describe the ruin of Babylon, that once great city. But that was not where the prophecy ended. Not only did Isaiah say that the city would be destroyed, but there is more information, fascinating information, that the prophet Isaiah shared in the book of Isaiah uh, in regard to prophecies against Babylon. For example, in Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 20, we read these words, It shall never be what? It shall never be inhabited. It shall neither it shall be dwelt in from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold. So that's very clear. The Bible says, the prophet says, it shall never be inhabited. Now remember, the book of Isaiah was written 720 years prior to the time of Christ. So let me ask you some question. Is Babylon inhabited today? No, it's not. Are there any human beings dwelling in Babylon today? No, there are not. Remember, verse 20 said, neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there. Question, how did Isaiah, 720 years before the time of Christ, know that the Arabian would continue to exist after Babylon had become dust? How? Don't forget small family groups of, of Arabs and those of mutual interest lived in tents throughout Babylon 2,700 years prior to our time now, 720 or 700 years prior to the time of Christ, 600 years prior to the time of Christ. We know that Arabs lived in tents throughout the Babylonian Empire, but how is it that the utter extinction of the Babylonian Empire was foretold by the prophet and each one of us knows there's not one solitary Babylonian in the world today. But how is it that the prophecy also said that while the most powerful race on the earth would become extinct together with their world ruling city, 
this small, insignificant, nomadic group would continue to live on 2,700 years later after the prophecy was fulfilled. How did the prophecy know that? How did the prophet know that? How did the prophet know that the Arabs would continue to dwell in tents? How did Isaiah the prophet know that, that Arabs would continue to live near Babylon? Yet the Bible implies this. It implies it very clearly. You see, since they were a wandering nomadic race, it, it, was, it would be realistic to suppose that eventually they would become extinct or they would just drift away from the area. But that's not the case. The Bible tells us and Isaiah tells us that they would continue to live in and around, or live around Babylon in that part of modern Iraq today. And what Isaiah saw 720 years ago is 720 years prior to the time of Christ is what we see today. It's been seen to be true. Furthermore, how did Isaiah know that the Arabs would continue to live in tents? Let's think about this. Why? Why would they continue to live in tents? After all, there's an abundant amount of building material there in Babylon, in the ruins of Babylon itself, which could make any number of villages, but these nomadic Arabs dwell in tents to this day. How did God's prophet Isaiah know that? Because he was inspired by God who knows the end from the beginning. And what Isaiah saw 720 years before the time of Christ, we see and recognize today. There's more amazing elements to this prophecy. For example, we can go to the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 50 or chapters 50 and 51, there are a series of prophecies regarding Chaldea, the Babylonian Empire, or Babylon itself. For example, in Jeremiah 50 verse 10, we read this, Chaldea, which is the Babylonian Empire, shall be a spoil, or, or rather I should say, I shouldn't say the Babylonian Empire, I should say Chaldea refers to the area that we, which we are, would identify as Mesopotamia or uh, Iraq slash Iran, part of Iran today. Chaldea shall be a spoil, and all that spoil her shall be satisfied, says the Lord. Now, in this prophetic prophecy by Jeremiah, again, Jeremiah lived about 600 years prior to the time of Jesus Christ, and he's told that the cities of the Babylonian Empire shall be spoiled and continually looted by conquerors. Nothing like this was ever predicted against any other nation or country or city that was doomed with prophetic wrath. But this is the case for Babylon, that it would continue to satisfy spoiler after spoiler after spoiler. But does this line up with history? Well, the prophecy also says that those who spoil her will be satisfied. How did the prophet Jeremiah know this? How did the prophet know that there would be riches enough to tempt plunderer after plunderer to come and spoil the land but when they came in they found that there was wealth enough to satisfy their avarice how did the prophet jeremiah know that furthermore the teeming riches of babylon and the surrounding countryside satisfied the ravages of conqueror after conqueror no sooner did a french horde of conqueror a fresh horde of conquerors sweep through the land then another army was preparing itself to fight for the plunder and loot the land anew. King Cyrus, 
in 539 BC, when he overthrew Babylon, he took rich plunder and gold for himself. 100 years later, when Xerxes, the king of the Persian Empire, swept through and overthrew Babylon, he, he himself found an abundance of treasure that satisfied his avarice. And then you have Alexander the Great, 127 years after Xerxes. He came into Babylon and instead of finding the city empty, bereft of any wealth, the contrary was true. He was surprised by the wealth he found, so much so that from the wealth of Babylon, he was able to pay his entire army and keep a vast fortune for himself. You see... In the Bible, it tells us the things that would be. And as we look back over history, we see that that's exactly the way they have turned out. Edward Gibbon, the British historian, English historian of the late 18th century, in his monumental work, The Decline and the Fall of the Roman Empire, wrote this of the emperor uh, the Roman emperor from the eastern part of the empire, Heraclius, when he laid siege or when he occupied the land of Chaldea. And this is what it says. Later when the Romans, under Heraclius... Now, I want to press pause for a moment before we go any further. Heraclius lived around 600 years after the time of Christ. This is 600 years after Christ. But notice what Edward Gibbon says. He says, later... When the Romans under Heraclius ravaged Chaldea, the remaining wealth appears to have exceeded their hopes and even to have satiated their avarice. In other words, satisfied their avarice. And this is from the book, Decline, or the, the works Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume 4, page 480. Just as God said through the prophet Jeremiah, it tells us that Babylon, the prophecy regarding Babylon, has been exact in every detail. And we ourselves are witnesses to those things. You see, the Bible is truly God's word. There's nothing else like it in the world. In the area of literature, there is nothing you can compare with it because it contains real prophecies that are easy to understand and verify the fact that the Bible is truly God's word. Does that make sense? Now let's continue on. We've looked at one prophecy or prophecies regarding Babylon. What we're going to do is we're going to go into our second phase of prophecies now. And while this prophecy begins with Babylon, the empire, it doesn't end with Babylon. All right. What we're going to do is we're going to go to the book of Daniel. Now, the book of Daniel was written 600 years prior to the time of Jesus Christ, or 550 to 600 years prior to the time of Jesus Christ. And in Daniel chapter 2, the greatest of the Babylonian kings, King Nebuchadnezzar, has had a dream. And in that dream, King Nebuchadnezzar sees something. And when he awakes, it disturbs him so much so that he, qu he quickly calls in his advisors, those who occupied the high positions in the royal court, the astrologers, the necromancers, the um, uh, soothsayers, etc., etc. They come in. All these men claim to have the power to communicate with the gods. So he calls them in and he asks them to explain the dream. And they say, they say, uh, 
say, king, you know, we can't do that. Only the gods can do that. And the Bible tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar's reaction was bad. In fact, he ordered the execution of the wise men throughout the realm. This is all in Daniel chapter 2. But the thing is that there was a man there by the name of Daniel. Now, Daniel was a Jew. He wasn't a Babylonian. He had been taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar. But he was being trained up in the arts and the languages, in the mathematics, in the culture of the Chaldeans he with a number of other Jews and when Daniel hears about this 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 uh, command to exterminate the wise men Daniel immediately goes into the presence of the king and he's given an audience and the king allows him time to pray and what does Daniel do Daniel prays with three of his Hebrew worthies they pray and God made known to them the dream and then Daniel comes back and he explains the dream to King Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar knows that he has a dream right then the interpretation is going to be sure all right so we're going to start from verse 32 31 this is from Daniel chapter 2 verse 31 and we read this it says you O king were watching and behold a great image This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This great image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its bellies and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Here Daniel, in vision, says to King Nebuchadnezzar that in in his dream, he sees an image and it has feet of iron and clay it has legs made out of iron it has thighs of and belly of brass it has a chest of silver and it has a head of what it has a head of gold but Daniel now Daniel continues on and he says this in verse 34 you watched while the stone was cut out without hands now let's pause here for a moment This is signifying that this stone is of divine origin that hasn't been made, it hasn't been crafted with human hands. And then, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were what? What does it say there? They were crushed together and became like the chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel says, in his dream, the king Nebuchadnezzar, he saw an image. It's head of gold, chest of silver, thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. Then he sees a stone which is made without human hands and it destroys the image and reduces everything to dust. And then the Bible says, or Daniel says, that in your dream that this stone filled the entire earth. And guess what? King Nebuchadnezzar knows that this is the dream. He doesn't challenge Daniel on any point that Daniel has shared with him. But now Daniel goes on to give the interpretation of the dream. And this is found in verses 37 to 44 as we read on. He says, you, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. He has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. 
you are this head of gold. So who is the head of gold? Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of Babylon. Let's read on. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. That's the one that's represented by the, th- the chest of silver and the arms of silver. And then it says, then after, then another, a third kingdom of bronze shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. So Daniel says that this image represents four kingdoms that would rule the world successively, commencing with King Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. And the Bible tells us that after the, the, um, the kingdom uh, of Babylon, there will be another kingdom represented by the chest of silver. There will be another kingdom represented by the thighs of brass. There will be a fourth kingdom represented by the legs of iron. And the Bible says that there would be a divided kingdom represented by those ten toes and feet of iron and clay. So in other words, King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was the start of this prophecy. Now let's read on now. And whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be what? What does it say there? It shall be a divided kingdom. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes uh, of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And in those day, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Now, when it says in the days of these kings, it's talking about in the days of that divided kingdom. And it identifies sovereign nations. And it says that those in the times of those sovereign nations, in the time of the divided kingdom, God will set up a kingdom which will, what does it say? Which will never be destroyed and the kingdom of God shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand for how long? The Bible says it will stand forever. Now, in these few prophetic lines, Daniel outlines the course of empires to come for centuries. It says there will be four empires uh, commencing with Babylon, followed by a next, uh, second kingdom identified with the silver chest, a third kingdom with the, the thighs of brass, and a fourth kingdom represented by the legs of iron, and then finally divided kingdom represented by the feet of iron and clay, those ten toes of iron and clay. Then finally a stone which is not made with human hands. It's of divine origin. It comes and it destroys the earthly kingdoms, and eventually it fills the entire earth. So this is the dream and this is the interpretation. Now, where do we get all this information from, by the way? We got it all from the Bible. So let's check this out now. Let's test this prophecy. Let's see if it matches history. Now, I don't have time to go into detail, but on the memory stick that you're going to receive, you're going to receive uh, the video presentation of this but you'll also receive a word file there, which will have a lot of information that will go into detail regarding this prophecy of Daniel chapter 2. Remember, the prophecy begins with Babylon. 
the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And it says that this kingdom shall rule. Now, when we look back over history, we see that the Babylonian kingdom had dominion over the Near East for a period from 605 BC to 539 BC. However, the prophecy says that a second kingdom would arise represented by those, those chests of silver and the arms of silver. Now, the fall of Babylon happened in 539 BC when Cyrus, leading a coalition of Medes and Persians, overthrew the Chaldean Empire and then overthrew the city of Babylon itself. It is a remarkable siege in which Cyrus engineered the fall of Babylon, but all the information there is within the handout that you will get. But the Bible tells us that there would be a third kingdom which would come onto the scene of action. It would be represented by the thighs of brass. And it says these words, Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And as we track history, and that's all we're doing here. All we're doing is tracking history now. We see that the third kingdom represented by those thighs and belly of brass represent the Grecian Empire under the leadership of Alexander the Great. Greece then continued her lordship over the world from 331 BC all the way down to 168 BC. But Greece became increasingly aware of her western neighbour, Rome, the fourth kingdom. And it was at the decisive battle, at the Battle of Pydna, on July 22nd, 168 BC, that the Greeks were completely crushed by the armies of Rome. And from this day, we have the full establishment of the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire, represented by those legs of iron. And the Roman Empire ruled from 168 BC all the way down to 476 AD. You remember that it was the Roman governor Pontius Pilate who sent Jesus to death. And the Romans did a lot for Christianity. They freed up the roads, they freed up the, um, the naval routes, the Mediterranean, which helped and assisted with the spread of the gospel. But this fourth kingdom... The Roman kingdom, it ruled from 168 to 476 AD. So there you have it. You have four world empires, just as the Bible said. And don't forget that the book of Daniel was written between 600 to 550 BC, before the time of Christ. But the prophecy does not end with the fourth empire, because it says after the fourth empire, that is the Roman empire, there would be what sort of a kingdom? there would be a divided kingdom. And Daniel prophesied that Rome would be placed with a divided kingdom. Now, the fall of Rome happened in 476 AD. And then it was divided primarily among the forerunners of modern Europe. And you will know the names, some of these ancient names and how they apply today. For example, the Anglo-Saxons became who? 
well, they became England. And then the Suavi became Portugal. The Visigoths became Spain. You have the Franks. They, they drifted to the west. They eventually became France. They occupied France. And then you have the Burgundians, which were Switzerland. You have the Alemanni, which became what we identify as the German kingdom. The Lombards uh, drifted down south and occupied Italy and became the forerunner of modern Italy today. Then you have the Vandals, the Heruli and the Ostrogoths and these kingdoms disappeared from the pages of history by about the 7th century. So here we have this prophecy written 600 years before the time of Christ and it says that there will be four kingdoms and no more that would occupy that part of the world. And then the Bible says that after that fourth kingdom, after the Roman kingdom, there will be a divided kingdom. Now imagine this. Imagine if you lived, let's just say, just a bit of a mind game here, just as a bit of a hypothetical. Let's imagine that you lived in the second or third century after the time of Christ. The Roman Empire is still the all-powerful kingdom. It rules from uh, parts of Mesopotamia through the Middle East, through Asia Minor, all the way across into Europe, and it goes as far as the country of England. It's vast and drifts down into North Africa. It is a vast empire. But imagine you're having a conversation with somebody, and they say to you, well, what do you think the fate of the Roman Empire would be? Well, you would logically conclude that because the Babylonians were defeated by the Medes and the Persians, and the Medes and the Persians were eventually overrun by the Greeks, and the Greeks were overrun by who? By the Romans, then the, the logical conclusion that you would come to is that another world power was going to come onto the scene of action and take the place of Rome. But contrary to the flow of history, the Bible says, no, no, that's not going to be the case. God says that in fact, there's going to be a divided kingdom represented by those 10 toes of iron and clay. And as we go back over history, that's exactly what we see. And we see that this prophecy of Daniel 2 has been exact in every detail. But let's go to the last part now, because it talks about this stone that comes and strikes the image. Let's, let's read the text now in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. And in the days of these kings, that is in the days of divided Europe, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. So the prophecy says that in the times of these kings, that is in the time of divided Europe, that God will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. It talks about a rock that's not made with human hands. And as you study the Bible and compare scripture with scripture, and we don't have the time to do it now, you discover that that rock is describing the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it says that second coming of Christ happens during the time in which the nations of divided Europe remain. See, God established establish his kingdom or will establish his kingdom when the redeemed are gathered up to meet the Lord in the air. In John chapter 14, verse 1 to 3, Jesus promised this. He says, let not your heart be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive to myself that where I am there, you may be also. Jesus in John chapter 14, 1 to 3, has given the promise of promises where he says that where he's gone, he will take his followers. So, When God establishes kingdom, it's talking about at the time of Christ's second coming, when the righteous are taken to the heavenly kingdom. That's when the kingdom is established, but that's not the end of the story. There's a lot more to it than that. And I don't want you to think that that's it. It's all all tied up there. There's nothing else because the Bible is an amazing book and it tells us that there's more that God's people are going to experience other than going to the heavenly city, which the Bible uh, speaks of so eloquently and so beautifully in Hebrews chapter 8, chapter 9, and also in the book of Revelation and in other parts as well. So God establishes his kingdom when the righteous are gathered up to meet the Lord in the air at the time of the second coming of Christ. But think about the accuracy of this prophecy. It spoke of four kingdoms followed by a divided kingdom. And then the breakup of the Roman Empire happened nearly 1,000 years after the time that the prophecy was given. And it's prophecies such as this, which is simple to explain, easy to understand, that proves to us that the Bible is certainly God's inspired word and we can trust it. And when the Bible talks about future events, which is what we looked at last week, We ask, can we know that these are going to be a reality? Well, the answer is yes, we can, based on the preponderance of evidence from the fulfilled prophecies of the past. Does that make sense? Is that clear? It's very clear. Now, let's conclude now, as we go into the last phase of our study regarding uh, this evidence which proves that the Bible is God's inspired word. As we study the Old Testament we see that there are over 300 prophecies written hundreds of years before the time of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, which were wondrously fulfilled in the birth, in the life, and in the resurrection, sorry, death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we identify these Old Testament prophecies as messianic prophecies. Now, in the Old Testament, there are over 300 of these prophecies. But was it a fluke that these things happened and were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ? For example, could these prophecies be fulfilled in the life of another? Could they have been fulfilled in the life of a person such as a Usain Bolt? Or what about a Lady Gaga? Or in the life of somebody like a Donald Trump? So what we're going to do now, we're going to test these prophecies. We're going to test these prophecies which pointed to the Messiah to come, which were written hundreds and even thousands of years prior to the time which Jesus came upon the earth. And we're going to see what are the chances that these prophecies were fulfilled in the life of him. Now, we're not going to look at all 300, but we're, or 300 plus, but we're going to look at just eight. 
eight army. And we're going to ask ourselves, what is the chances that those eight prophecies were fulfilled in the life of another person? So let's begin. All right, the first prophecy that we're going to look at is found in Psalm 22, verse 16, written over 1,000 years prior to the time of Christ. And on the screen it says, For dogs have compassed me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. Now, how were these words fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ? Obviously, when Jesus was on the cross. Let's continue on now. It says in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, now the book of Micah, is a, it has another messianic prophecy written 800 years before the time of Jesus. And it says, but you, Bethlehem Ephratah, where was Jesus born? It was born in Bethlehem. Why does it say Bethlehem Ephratah? Because there were two Bethlehems in Judah and in, in um, Palestine at the time. There was the one in Judah, which is closest to Jerusalem, which is being referred to here as Ephratah. Then there was a second one in Zebulon, one of the northern regions of the, of the country. It says, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting so this prophecy tells us that the child to be born in bethlehem the messiah to be born in bethlehem existed prior to the creation of this world in fact he's always existed but that's a study for another time let's move on now the third prophecy in Isaiah, now the book of Isaiah was written 720 years prior to the time of Christ. And in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, we, see God, we hear God's prophet or we read God's prophet saying this, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Can I ask you, how was that fulfilled in relation to Jesus' ministry? Well, this is the work of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said when he was questioned, I'm the voice of one in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord. So again, this is fulfilled in, in conjunction with the life of Jesus Christ. Let's go to our next uh, prophecy. Again, found in Isaiah 53 now, but verse 7. And it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet, we op yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the what? He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Again, how was that fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Well, by the fact when he was interrogated by Herod, when he's interrogated by his accusers, the Bible says that he was silent. Let's look at the next prophecy in verse 12 of chapter 53. It says, and he was numbered with who? He was numbered with the transgressions and he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. How in the life of Jesus was that fulfilled? This is when Jesus is on the cross, but this is the penalty that he paid for us. He took our place because of our sins. Jesus became sin for us, as the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. It says that he became subject to death even the death of the cross. But this was fulfilled in Jesus' sacrificial, meritorious act of taking our place on the cross, being punished the way that we deserve to be punished. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, just a reference to Jerusalem there. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming 
to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, as I said, this prophecy was written around 520 years prior to the time of Christ. But this is describing the events of Palm Sunday, when Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Again, in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, we read this. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Who is that referring to? This is referring to Judas and the fee that he was paid in order to betray Jesus. And then in verse 13 of the same chapter, we read this. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Written 520 years before the time of Christ. How was that fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Well, this is Judas again, when he recognizes that he has betrayed innocent blood and he comes to the priest and he says, I betrayed innocent blood and he throws the 30 pieces of silver into the temple. So we've seen that these eight prophecies have been fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. But is there a chance that these prophecies could be fulfilled in the life of another person? Is it possible that these prophecies could be fulfilled in the life of a person such as John F. Kennedy? Is it possible that these prophecies could be fulfilled in the life of a Richard Dawkins? Well, let's find out what the chances are now of just those eight prophecies being fulfilled in the life of one person. Well, a mathematician by the name of Peter Stoner, Professor Peter Stoner. He was the chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena University and the professor of science at Westmont College. These are all in the United States, or both are in the United States. And what he did, he calculated the chances of those prophecies being fulfilled in the life of one individual. And the calculation that he came to, or the, the conclusion that he came to, was that the chances of those eight prophecies, just those eight prophecies, being fulfilled in the life of one person, that is, who has ever existed from the beginning of time right down to the end in which we find ourselves now, is one chance in 10 to the power of 17. Or that's one in 10 chances with the 10 having 17 zeros following it. Now, another way to identify 10 to the power of 17 is 100 quadrillion. So, This man says, this man, Professor Peter Stoner, says that the chances of these prophecies being fulfilled in the life of any one individual is one chance in 100 quadrillion. Now, we don't know what that number is. We can't can't imagine what that number would look like. But I want to do it this way in terms of a, uh, a bit of an illustration. Imagine that we had 100 quadrillion one dollar coins and what we do is we mark one of those quadrillion 100 quadrillion coins and then what we do is we pour those 100 quadrillion dollar coins over the state of Victoria and it not only covers all of Melbourne 
It goes out as far west as Geelong, but it goes all the way to the South Australian border. It goes all the way up north to the Murray River. It goes right down to Bass Strait and then out to Point Hicks, the furthest eastern point on the Victorian map. So it goes all the way. It covers the entire state in a, in a, in a sea of $1 coins, one metre deep. Now, remember, we've got one $1 coin there that has been especially marked. But what we're going to do now is we're going to blindfold a person and we're going to say to that man, you can go as far north as you like, you can go as far south as you like, east or west, you can go any direction you like, but only on one occasion, one occasion only, can you put your hand into that statewide mass and pull up a coin and that coin has to be the one with the mark on it or the cross on it. What chances do you think that that man ha would have of actually uh, retrieving that one that has been marked? Well, I can see that everyone's shaking their heads and saying none, none, but it is. He has one chance. One chance in 100 quadrillion. That's the chances there. But you see, those eight prophecies were fulfilled in one person, in the life, in the ministry of Jesus Christ. But not only eight prophecies, remember this, over 300 prophecies were fulfilled in the birth, in the ministry, in the life, in the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Word of God is solid. It is the wisdom of an infinite mind. And prophecy assures us that God is God's book, the Bible, is of supernatural origin. And it has shown us that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Without any doubt, there is no one else who fulfills the prophecies like Jesus. But probably in the most famous text in the Bible, John chapter 3 and verse 16, it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son or only begotten son, the, the King James Version says, his only son, so that everyone who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This text here says that God the Father so loved the world, that's us, that he gave his beloved son, begotten, only begotten son, in order that we may have eternal life with him none but the son of god jesus christ could secure our salvation none but the son of god could save us because jesus christ is the only one who has walked this earth and has never sinned what the bible shows us in jesus is that there is nobody in the universe more committed to you there is nobody more committed to your salvation than god the father there's nobody more committed to the, your salvation than what Jesus prepared to do for you in dying at the cross. And the invitation for us is that if, if we will, if we are willing, God will accept you just as you are. In the book of, of Matthew, the Bible tells us that at the time of Christ's crucifixion, the Bible says that the earth became dark 
and the people wailed. And Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But this was simply to underscore the fact that Jesus had become sin. He had become the sacrifice for mankind. He was treated the way we deserve in order that we could be treated the way he deserves. He was punished the way we deserve to be punished uh, in order that we could be treated the way that he deserved to be treated. But in Matthew chapter 11, we read, we read this remarkable invitation just as we close now. Jesus says, come to me all you that labor and heavy laden and I will give you what? What does it say there? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is Jesus' invitation to us that we would come to him just as we are. But when we come to Jesus Christ, the Bible says that he will give us rest. This is the rest that comes from just living in this world, the nervous agitation that comes in being in this world. But we find rest, we find peace from knowing him. There may be some people here, and in fact, I know that there are a lot of people here who have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. If you want to do that, you can do that in a very quiet and wonderful way. Just as I close in prayer shortly, as we all bow our heads for prayer, you can say, Lord Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Saviour. Come into my life. And it's as simple and as easy as that. But I want to ask a couple more questions just before we finish. Has this presentation tonight shown you that the Bible is a book altogether different than any other literature in the world. Put up your hand if it has. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Can you see also that the prophecies of the Old Testament point and identify Jesus Christ as the Messiah of the world? Put up your other hand. All right. God bless you. That is tremendous. Tremendous. All right. Well, what we're going to do now is we're just before we finish in prayer, we're going to talk about next week's presentation. Now, next week's presentation is called The Event That Ends the World. And this is an absolutely startling uh, prophecy that we're going to look at, but it will make good sense in light of what we have already discovered here. Now, remember... As you go out, don't forget to receive your, uh, the memory stick and the other material, the Bible study uh, reading material there for you. Everything's free of charge, so you're welcome to it. Take it home, share it with your family, share it with your friends so that they can bless as you have been blessed as well. Well, why don't we just close our eyes now and bow our heads for prayer. And for those of you who have never accepted Jesus Christ, Take the opportunity to invite him into your lives. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. We thank you for the clarity of the scriptures. We thank you for your continual watch care upon us. And Father, as we leave this place here tonight, and for those who are watching on YouTube or live streaming this event, we pray that their hearts would be lifted and buoyed as they consider the things of eternal value and that they recognize in you that you can bring a peace which passes all understanding from the restless agitation and the, the unhappiness that, that seems to permeate this world. You can bring in true happiness that is lasting and satisfying. So we thank you, Father. 
for Jesus Christ our Lord and Saviour. We thank you for the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit who moves upon our hearts. We thank you for him and it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. This message was made available by the Orchard Melbourne Central City Church. For more resources like this, visit theorchardmelbourne.org.au. Thank you for listening to Go Teach All Nations here on 3ABN Australia Radio. The kingdoms of earth pass away one by one, but the kingdom of heaven remains. It is built on a rock, and the Lord is its king, and forever and ever he reigns. It shall stand, it shall stand, it shall stand, it shall stand forever and ever and ever. It shall stand, it shall stand, it shall stand. It shall stand, it shall stand forever and ever. Amen and amen. The tempest may rage and its anger acclaim. Yea, the wind and the torrents may roar. And the strong gates of hell may assail it in vain. Still the kingdom shall stand evermore. It shall stand, it shall stand, it shall stand, it shall stand forever and ever and ever. It shall stand, it shall stand, it shall stand, it shall stand, it shall stand forever and ever. Amen and amen. The kingdom of God is now open to all. The vilest may now enter in. There's a welcome for all who will turn to the Lord for salvation and pardon for sin. It shall stand, it shall stand, it shall stand, it shall stand forever and ever and ever. It shall stand, it shall stand, it shall stand, it shall stand, it shall stand forever and ever.
This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.